cooking up these two days together. Uh, we were talking about various things that we might do, and one thing that we wanted to do is to uh, play with each other a little bit, uh, play with the form slightly, and also uh, explore together. So I mentioned to him that uh, in our work at the Zen Hospice, we had developed some very uh, simple precepts which guide our work there. Uh, in attending to people who are dying, and accompanying people who are dying. And then I found that these uh, precepts had um, application beyond just that experience. Perhaps were useful to people in other settings. So, um, I, I think of these um, precepts as kind of bottomless practices that in order to understand, in order to really, to, in order to realize, we have to live into them, actually, and express them through action. So, um, obviously these are not a, a linear path. These are um, some ways of articulating some of the really most essential elements in accompanying the dying. So what we're going to try to do here is I'm going to speak about each one individually and then maybe Gavin will have some additional commentary on them. And we thought these might set uh, context for our uh, two days together. So the first uh, precept, I welcome everything, push away nothing. Welcome everything, push away nothing. You don't have to write these down, we'll give them to you later. <laughs> um, so how do we do this? It sounds really good, it would make a great bumper sticker, right? <laughs> welcome everything, push away nothing, how do we do it? At the Zen Hospice, we do it first by creating an environment which is extraordinarily receptive, a kind, an open environment, in which people can die the way they need to die, not the way we imagine they should. <coughs> Welcome everything and push away nothing doesn't mean that we have to like what's arising. It just means that we have to be willing to meet it. To welcome everything and push away nothing is really to create a kind of fearless receptivity. So a few years back I was called to the uh, psychiatric unit at San Francisco General Hospital. Because there was a man there that was referred to our hospice. I don't know if any of you have ever been in psychiatric units, but they're not very friendly places. Very bare and stark. And I walked into this room, and there was this man in this very empty room, without windows, without anything on the walls. And I sat down next to him. And um, the reason he was in this uh, room was because uh, he had terminal lung cancer. And feeling that he couldn't find any quality to his life, he tried to take his life. And so he wound up in the psychiatric unit. 
was sitting there next to him uh, for quite a long time in silence. Finally, he turned to me and he said, uh, who are you? <laughs> he said, nobody has ever sat this long in this room with me before. And I said, well, I get a lot of practice at sitting still. And I asked him a very simple question. I said, uh, what do you want? And he said, spaghetti. <laughs> I said, uh, we make really great spaghetti at our house. Why don't you come and live with us? And that was the end of the admissions interview. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day when he arrived at the house, uh, we had a big bowl of spaghetti waiting for him. Because <laughs> you understand, uh, spaghetti meant nutrients and home and familiarity. So he stayed with us uh, for some months. But he didn't stop wanting to kill himself just because we gave him spaghetti. Very good spaghetti, it's not that good. <laughs> In fact, uh, he was so determined on this course that at the time there was a book called Final Exit which described ways to take your life. So I got him this book and I read it to him chapter by chapter. I welcome everything, push away nothing. And sometimes, uh, to understand what the healing is, we have to go to the darkest place, the most difficult place. And it helps if there's someone who can go there with us. Now, in the end, uh, he didn't take his life. In fact, before he died, he said, uh, Frank, I want to thank you. I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. And I said, uh, how is that possible? Just a few weeks ago, you wanted to kill yourself because you couldn't walk in the park and write in your diaries. And he said, oh, that. That was just chasing desire. And he said to me, this was a man who lived in a single room occupancy hotel, by the way. Not a Buddhist teacher, you know. Just an ordinary man. And I said, do you mean these activities of your life aren't important to you anymore? He said, no, it's not the activities that bring me joy. It's the attention to the activities. He said, now my pleasure comes from the coolness of the breeze and the softness of the sheets. I thought this was an extraordinary turnaround for a man in a psychiatric unit. Mm -hmm. I welcome everything. Push away nothing. That's not so easy to do, though, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet it feels like, you know, our suffering world, our, our planet that is in such disarray, is crying out to those of us who are committed to love, who are committed to consciousness, to find a way to meet the circumstances of this time with the capacity to welcome everything and to push away nothing. It feels that if we as a species can tip the balance that there are sufficient numbers among us that can go into this world open-hearted, courageous, brave, welcoming everything, pushing away nothing, we can contradict this prevailing template upon which so much of life is lived today. 
what we don't like, we will bomb, we will obliterate, we will marginalize, we'll do whatever we can. And if we can just develop this capacity to welcome and to feel the agony that sometimes that welcoming might bring, and not try and deflect ourselves from that suffering, just feel it, then I believe we are positioning ourselves on a landscape where our responses to the complicated issues of this time become so much, so much more trustworthy. So much more trustworthy. And the word used, I, I use radical acceptance and the word you fearless receptivity yeah fearless receptivity radical acceptance and you know what you said is so important it's like you know this I get this is not the way of docility you know this is not a wishy-washy way you know sometimes there's we hoodwinked into the notion that saying yes and welcoming everything is a kind of condoning of what never, of course, should be happening. But I believe that this is the fiercest kind of valor and strength mm. to be able to say yes and to allow what is and to feel the agony of what is and out of that capacity to feel comes a response that I feel must save the planet. I love that saying of Christ in the Gnostic Gospels where he says, what we bring forth from within us will save us, Mm. and what we don't bring forth will destroy us. Mm. And that has everything to do with this beautiful precept of welcoming everything and pushing away nothing. Mm. So I high five on the first (laughs) 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 You know, uh, we start just really simply by this this, this little part of us, you know, that we don't want to have a hard time welcoming. Some tension in the body, some meanness in our spirit. And, uh, we start just that simply by being really kind to ourselves, and then that just grows. <coughs> now the second precept is uh, bring your whole self to the experience. Uh, to be people who heal, and even to be people who are healed, we have to bring our whole self. This means that, for example, when we're accompanying someone who's dying, or just someone that's struggling, it's not just our strength that helps, not just our expertise. Our professional warmth doesn't heal. So we have to bring forward not just our our strength, but also our weakness. Uh, Understanding that our passions and our wounds also serve. They serve as a meeting place with this other person. They are what allow us to create an empathetic bridge to their experience. So a few years ago, a very, very good friend of mine was dying of AIDS. I love him very much. And this one day, you know, 
my day to take care of him. He was very sick. And in one afternoon, he lost his ability to speak in any intelligent way, to hold a fork or to stand. And I remember uh, sitting with him across from his kitchen table, which was always chaotic. Uh, and uh, I just was so scared, you know, because I couldn't find my friend. He was just there the day before, and now he seemed to be gone. And that caring for him was a lot of work. Uh, he had these anal tumors and constant diarrhea. And so to take care of him was a tremendous effort. I just missed my friend. You know. I remember I would move him from the toilet to the sitz bath and back to the toilet uh, dozens of times through the day into the night, the late hours of the morning. And really, I was horrible. I was uh, paternalistic and manipulative. I treated him like a child sometimes. Because really what I wanted was for him to just go to bed, you know, and go to sleep and to wake up in the morning and have this nightmare be over. And then uh, between one of these moves to the toilet and the sits bath, out of his very garbled and confused mind, he said to me, You're trying too hard! <laughs> and I was. Much too hard. I had to be somebody. Mr. Hospice, you know. And I remember I stopped and uh, I sat down beside the toilet and I just cried. And there we were together, he and I. And it was the most intimate uh, moment of our whole relationship, more profound than the moment of his die. This moment there beside the toilet. Because there was no separation. His suffering was also my suffering. Not just an intellectual idea. We really understood it to be true. See, up until that point, I was afraid to go into the territory where he was. This territory of helplessness, really. But once I was willing to enter there, there we were together. Now, we didn't stay helpless forever. We knew, figured out what to do next. But we couldn't know that until we were really willing to enter this territory together. Be there, not separate. So when I say, bring your whole self to the experience, we don't know what part of ourself will be of help. I only know that uh, if we're going to be of any service to one another, and we have to include ourselves in the equation. Bring your whole self to the experience. What part of yourself do you hold back? And tell me, how do you diminish that quality? How do you reduce its value?
bring your whole self to the experience. Your whole self. Such a kind way to look at ourselves, I think. Such a gesture of affection for ourselves. When Frank and I uh, first met was at an event that we were both present with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And uh, we kind of made a beeline to one another, although we didn't know who we were. But by the end of that wonderful day of celebration, we hatched the sort of hope that we might some way get up to mischief together. So <laughs> it's wonderful to be here, the, the fruition of that moment. And one of the things that His Holiness said that day was that perhaps the greatest impediment to flowering in the West, to um, realizing the highest potential for us, is a pervasive self-hatred in the West. That, you know, he thought that as teachers at a later meeting, he said, as teachers of these ancient teachings in the West, our primary responsibility is to do whatever we can to serve an ending to the self-hatred. Because the self-hatred not only is tearing our own hearts apart, but collectively it is tearing the fabric of our beloved planet. And so, when we're talking about bringing our whole self to the experience, it feels like perhaps the greatest gesture of that inner affection, the greatest contradiction to what for many of us is a lifetime of self-crucifixion and self-hatred and inner conflict, is the willingness to come and do what we are doing here today. To have the courage, the magnificent courage, and I love the word that Frank used when he was describing the sitting posture, the dignity of allowing what is to be with a frankness and a candor and, um, you know, this welcoming everything, avoiding nothing. And I remember at the end of a long period of retreat, in the beginning years of the meditation practice in Massachusetts, um, been doing loving-kindness and was floating around all those those divine abodes and had somewhat elevated notions of my attainments and, you know, how I was going to just be this instrument of love and peace and couldn't wait, was raring to go and went into Northampton, which if any of you have been there, it's a, a wonderful town and it's pretty much a snow-white town. And... Um, so there was this white South African having sat a couple of years in silence and doing these practices, walking down the street in Northampton, just filled with a sense of, of my own uh, great-heartedness. And 
this black person, which was an unusual thing, a black man, was walking on the other side of the street. And the first thought that went through my mind was, what's he doing here? <laughs> and from a place of feeling such connection and such intimacy and a part of the web came this, this uh, conditioned response. And it completely broke my heart. It completely broke my heart to think that within me I carried the wiring of of an activity that had torn my heart apart and ultimately exiled me from my own country. There it was, alive and well within myself. And that's what I took back into the retreat. And the self-acknowledgement, the agony of that self-acknowledgement was a terrible thing. And yet it felt like the fruition of that journey into myself of a self-acknowledgement eventually took me back to South Africa where I was able to respond to the situation there in a way that was impossible before. Having acknowledged the racism within myself that has to have been there. You cannot grow up in a disfigured society like that without having it. If I didn't have it, there'd be something wrong with me but being willing to accept it, bringing the whole self both to the experience, the inner experience of myself and relating to the world is when I felt I was able to return to my beloved homeland and be an instrument of peace for the first time. So those areas of woundedness and disfiguration within ourselves, the degree to which we're willing to go to those places is the degree to which we can then move out into the world and be as St. Francis said, you know, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace where there is hatred and so love. I have a friend, you know him, I think, Bernie Glassman. Yeah. A crazy Zen teacher. And, uh, <coughs> I helped him lead a retreat at Auschwitz some years back. But Bernie also leads a thing called street retreats, in which we take people like we are here and go out and live on the streets of New York for a week. And uh, in this particular practice, uh, you're asked not to, if you're a man, not to shave or bathe, or a woman not to bathe or put on makeup or any of these things, for a week before you go on the street. So that when you go on the street, you're already pretty ragged, you know. And you live on the street for a week and you're allowed one dollar. Quite a plunge, actually. That's what Bernie calls it, a plunge. To plunge people into, really, to plunge them into environments so that they can learn to be sensitive to the experience of those environments. In this case, to people living on the margins of society, but really to a deeper thing. And it's what Gavin's speaking to here. It's learning that that which we reject in the world, we will reject in ourselves. And of course, that which we reject in ourselves, we will find hatred for in the world. The third precept. Don't wait. This is my favorite. Don't wait. <coughs> Waiting is full of expectations. 
patient and patient. And when we're waiting, strategizing about the future, we're missing what's happening right now. Often I'm with people and they say to me, when will my brother, when will my mother, when will my father die? And I say, don't wait. Waiting for the moment of dying, we miss all the moments of living in between. Don't wait. Mm. <coughs> a fellow on our board came to see me. His mother was dying in Toronto. He was in San Francisco. And the doctor said she was coming close to the end of her life. And so he came to see me and said, when should I go? I have my business here. What's, what's the right time? So what have the doctors said? And they said, well, she has a six-week prognosis. And I began to ask him questions about his mother and also really about him. And as he spoke, I just listened to him. Listening not only to his words, but watching the tone of his face, the color of his skin, what happened in his upper lip and his chest. And at the end of the conversation, I said, I think you should go tonight. He said, tonight I can't, I have business, I always I said, no, go tonight. And he said, okay, and he got on the red eye and he flew to Toronto. And he arrived at 10 in the morning, and at 1 in the afternoon, he was sitting with his mother at her bedside when she died. Don't wait. If there's someone you love, tell them that you love them. Don't wait. Suzuki Roshi used to say, we should sit like our hair is on fire. <laughs> That's a good expression of don't wait. <laughs> this doesn't mean to move ahead in our life in a kind of panic either, though. It doesn't mean not to move mindfully. It just means be... Don't get lost in expectation and future strategizing. It's okay to make plans. Just hold them lightly. Don't miss what's happening now for some future moment. Don't let your life become an afterthought. This is really an encouragement to come very precisely into this moment, enjoying the beauty and the Horror that it has to offer. But what do you think? <laughs> it seems like, personally, recently one of the most stirring um, aspects of the journey has been the crystallization of or the ever-deepening crystallization of what is most important. Mm. That, you know, I, I feel one of the greatest kindnesses for those of us who, who you know, are inquisitive, <coughs> who are looking, who are investigating, who are questioning ourselves, the world, what is real, um, is 
to become as clear as possible about what is most important in this human life. Not that we have to have a goal, we're not talking about goals, but in this complicated world where our attention is called in so many different directions, where it seems like there are a million things calling for care, calling for need, it's so easy to be lost in the many. And my experience, personally, this is a, this is, it's a sort of an intimate landscape, is that in the last year, and uh, the circumstances of earlier this year for me, um, when I almost died, was that there, there was a birthing of what was most important. It was like the many became the one. And living a life where the one is the template, the touchstone, the non-negotiable, feels like such a kindness, because then one can give oneself to the circumstances of life as they present themselves, as long as they're in service to the one. And so, in a world that so often is overwhelming, to have as a pole star, as a foundation, what is most important feels like such a blessing. And I sometimes call this, you know, uh, clarity of intention or sort of unshakable resolve. And then it's almost like, you know, say a thought arises. If the thought's in service to the one, fantastic. It's, it's a <coughs> useful thought. Give it energy. It's in service. If it's not, it becomes immediately imp- um, apparent and it's released and it moves on. If a situation arises, it's almost like there's a, almost like a, 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 a blessed capacity to feel into the situation. Is this something I want to give energy to? Is it in service to the one? And, you know, there's either of course, or I think this one will sidestep. And so this don't wait feels like, uh, for me, it's expressed so much in, um, in uh, serving what is most important. For me, mm-hmm. what that is, is... That's what I was going to ask next. <laughs> um, I mean, the word that has been so diluted and so in some ways diminished, of course, is the word love, you know. And so I use that very hesitatingly, but the experience of that capacity to love that brings us to life, to each other, to one's experience of oneself, to the to the to the status of the planet with open eyes, open heart, presence, and I'm moving into the fourth precept here, which is may I yeah please may I yeah preempt you no no go right ahead which is to find a place of rest in the middle of things feels like an expression of of that love of just to be there yes. 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 
And if there was a question, it would be, what would love do now? What would love do now? For me, that's kind of the essence of the practice, the meditation. Suzuki Roshi, who's the founder of Zen Center, right? come from, uh, used to say, we sit just to express our true nature. You know, mm-hmm. not really to get anything else happening. And this essential quality, love, being an essential state, is an, it's just that. It's an expression of this true nature. And so we sit really just to do that. Not to figure anything out. It's not really a self-improvement project, you know, to sit. Mm-hmm. It's just simply to express this one thing. Yeah. That might be, might be, um, um, drawn or expressed in lots of different facets. <coughs> Diamond-like nature would be could be expressed in lots of different ways: love and compassion and value and strength. The kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. Yeah. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. Yeah. We think about rest as something that will come later, like when our list is checked off. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I never get to seem to get to that place. My lists keep growing. I have a friend of mine who's, I think, almost a professional list maker. Um, we think rest will come when we go on a holiday, you know, or when we come to a day of retreat like this. We think rest will come by changing the conditions of our life. Imagine if we get all the conditions just right, it'll go well. Carol, this is a very beautiful place you have here. Thank you. Mm. There are these great, I stayed here last night, and there are these wonderful beds here. They're extraordinary. I mean, really amazing. I came here, I arrived yesterday in Hawaii, and I was treated to this beautiful place, this great bed with big comforters, you know. And I woke up this morning, and the breeze was coming through, and it was, I thought, oh my God, I'm in paradise. It's perfect here. Everything is just right. Thank you. Mm. And then I had to pee. <laughs> so I just get out of bed, you know, and rush to the toilet and come back, jump in the bed, hoping to recreate the conditions. You know, <coughs> just right again. Yeah. Not so, though. I couldn't do it. Mm. Conditions are constantly changing. And so, where do we find this rest? Do we do it by manipulating and shifting the conditions? Or actually learning to live in a kind of harmony, if you will, with the ever-changing truth of our lives. Or we're resisting this constant change right up until the moment of our death. And then we say, like the fellow I described this morning, I never thought it would be like this. I find this rest comes not from shifting the conditions, but by bringing our attention fully and completely to actually what's occurring. Haven't you ever done that? Don't you know what it's like when you turn toward your grandchildren or your child and you just give them all of your attention and you come away so refreshed, don't you? Or when you find yourself absorbed in a book sometimes and the next thing you know, hours have passed and you feel refreshed. It's the quality of attention that brings on this refreshment, really. Not struggling not fighting against the conditions, but resting right in the midst of Find a place of rest in the middle of things. What happens in the gap at the end of the exhale? Can you rest there? 
You know, all of these things, these precepts we've been talking about, they're discovered right in the breath. Find this place of rest in the middle of things. Letting the chaos of the mind, you know, spin around, the sensations in the body present themselves, and just find a place of rest right in the center of things. The fifth precept is cultivate don't know mind. When I was making this list, I felt obliged to put something Zen-like in it. Before you go all Zen on us. (laughs) (laughs) Can I pull you back to number four? Okay. (laughs) Finding a place of rest in the middle of things. Mm -hmm. Oh, like you, I mean, I feel such gratitude for this beautiful place and the blessing of being here. And it feels so important that we bless and gift ourselves um, the bounty uh, of, uh, of silence and of coming together as a, as a family, of reminding one another that we're not alone, having an opportunity to be with what perhaps the busyness of our life prevents us perhaps from feeling. And I feel also um, that there are pitfalls in situations like this, that one can, on the journey, develop a kind of alliance, Mm. almost a sort of a codependence on retreating, on beautiful places, Mm -hmm. Um, and that they almost become a prerequisite for uh, the living of these qualities that Frank's been talking about, of, of heart and mind. And for me, you know, speaking personally, um, it's been both a great joy and celebration, and it's with great humility that I come to realize that actually these qualities are far stronger than I originally thought. They feel so fragile sometimes, they feel so new. We feel like a child birthing a part of oneself, a tenderness, and that they need to be, it needs to be protected, and it needs to be nurtured, and it does need to be protected, it does need to be nurtured, and yet it also feels like, um, again, just to go back to the, the universal theme, that I think it's really important that we challenge the notion of fragility because these qualities have to be lived, they have to be taken out there and sometimes in really difficult places can we be that bold, that wild, that unrestrained in our loving that we will go into a situation that seems to be completely devoid of any sensitivity and just be wildly, without restraint, you know, who we are, loving, no matter what. It's like the bottom line, what is most important, we'll do it everywhere without exception. Just as the vision of practice is that nothing falls outside of the field of our attention, whether it's, you know, uh, the easy parts, you know, of the journey, like meditation, or the juicy, more difficult parts, like our sexuality, like money, like 
like our place in the political, you know, quagmire, you know, you know, do we live a universal life or have we uh, circumscribed what it means to be, you know, a whole person? And for me, Hafiz, you know, one of the, the many things I love about Hafiz and those, did I ever tell you that I've been to Shiraz, you know, when I lived in Iran, I visited Shiraz many times where Hafiz was born and lived his whole life, you know, and in this dusty, dirty, wind-blown desert town that twice a year erupts in color because it's also the rose capital of the world and so out of all this dust, twice a year there's this riot of color and fragrance and they make the most beautiful rose water in the world in Shiraz. And there in Shiraz, in, you know, all of this gray and dust, you know, was this flower of wild passion. And so, if you will bear with me, just living the wild, magnificent, unrestrained life seems to be something that this guy <coughs> does so well. He says, go for a walk if it is not too dark. Get some fresh air, try a smile, say something kind to a safe-looking stranger if one happens by. <laughs> Always exercise your heart's knowing. You might as well attempt something real along this path. Take your spouse or your lover in your arms the way you did when you first met. Let tenderness pour from your eyes the way the sun gazes warmly on the earth. Play a game with some children, extend yourself to a friend. Sing a few ribald songs to your pets and to your plants. <laughs> Why not let them get drunk and wild with you? <clears throat> Let's toast every rung we've climbed on evolution's ladder. Whisper, I love you, I love you to the whole mad world. Let's stop reading about God. We will never understand him. Jump to your feet, wave your fists, threaten and warn the whole universe that your heart can no longer live without real love. Yeah. I think it's uh, not so easy though. Jump into this love. So sometimes what we have to look at is what is it that's obscuring the love? What is it that stands in the way of it? And sometimes we're in, we're in situations where it's not so where love is not our first response. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, a while back, I was at the hospice, and there was a man at the hospice. He was really a grouch, you know. He was not a very nice guy. He was really mean. Just because people are dying, by the way, doesn't mean they get nice. <laughs> this is really an illusion. And every time someone would walk in his room, he would scream at them. So uh, they asked me if I'd go see him, so I went upstairs to see him, and uh, I walked in the room, and he screamed at me. He said, I can't breathe in here! He had a little bit of a respiratory problem and a little bit of confusion, so he had oxygen on. He just kept screaming at me, I can't breathe in this damn place! What kind of a place is this you've got me? And this is how I was greeted, you know. I've got to tell you, my first response was not jump into love. 
<laughs> My first response was to run in the other direction, actually, to run out of the room. But one thing I have learned, partly from sitting on this cushion, is when I'm really scared, what I should do is sit down. Like, I haven't learned a lot, but this I've learned. When you're really scared, <laughs> the best strategy is to sit down. So I sat down in the chair. And as I sat down on the chair, I could feel my butt you know, in the chair. And then I could feel my feet on the floor. And I thought, oh, that feels better. And he's still screaming, by the way. He's just nonstop screaming. Get out of here! Go on! So I feel my feet on the floor, and I thought, well, that feels pretty good. Maybe if it feels good for me, it'll feel good for him. That's as far as I got. So I reached under the covers at the end of the bed, and I just held his foot. And uh, he was still screaming, but I noticed that the volume went down a little bit. And then he kept screaming, I can't breathe! And I realized I wasn't breathing very well either. My breath was somewhere just here, my throat. So I settled back and began to feel my breath a little more deeply. I could feel the in-breath and the out-breath. And I said to him, try this! <gasps> you know? Just like that. And so he inhaled. And then I said, now don't forget to exhale. Right? <laughs> and we did this just for a little while together. I noticed that when we were breathing together, he wasn't screaming. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And then when he stopped screaming, I really started to relax. Mm -hmm. And then as I relaxed, I felt more kind, actually. This natural state just emerges, you know, when there's nothing obscuring and as I felt more kind, I realized I always felt very loving toward this guy. Really. Mm. And so I turned to him and I said, Larry, you know, so many people here love you. Just like that. And he said, uh, who? <laughs> <laughs> and I took a big risk, you know. I said, uh, your mother. Huh? Because uh, that's the love, you know, that we want so much. That's the first image of love. Even if we didn't get it, that's the one we want. So he said, I hope so, like that, kind of grumpy. But I noticed that he wasn't screaming anymore, and he fell back into his pillow to rest. Yeah. And so I just stood there for a while, breathing and holding his foot and breathing, and once in a while saying, you know, so many people love you. So I think sometimes in order to discover this, we have to first examine or feel our way through that which is obscuring the situation. <coughs> which in and of itself is an act of love. Mm -hmm. yeah. So now let's go to this fifth precept. The Zen one? Yeah. <laughs> the Zen stuff? They always like saying things, like, it's like doublespeak, you know. It's this and it's not this, that kind of thing. Really, until we're the same as it. And so what Gavin was just describing, that this is an act of love to move toward the obscuration or the thing that's difficult. This is not only an act of love, but this is cultivating don't know mind. This is to live closely with the experience. And allow the situation or the experience itself to show us the way, to inform us. To let us know what to do next. Anyway.
Suzuki Rashi, again, used to say, he was very famous for saying, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. Yeah. How do we do this? Cultivate, don't know mind. I'll tell you one more story. This fellow uh, I was telling you about a while ago, my friend John, this one night, um, he was coming very close to the end of his life, and he was breathing with a lot of difficulty. It seemed like his whole breath was in his throat. It was really tight. His head was thrust back like that. And I sat next to him, and I, you know, I just felt helpless. I didn't know what to do. He was struggling, that was clear. And the sitting there, uh, <clears throat> the telephone rang, and it was his famous spiritual teacher. I won't say which one. John had a lot of them around him. And I told him what was going on, and he said, Oh, I think what's happening is he's dying, and really, you should just touch the top of his head. And this will help the spirit to come out. I said, Okay, I'll try that. And I did this for 20 minutes, but nothing changed. So a little while later, his doctor called. And his doctor said, just increase the morphine a little bit, the roxanol. Just give him a little extra dose, it'll relax his breathing. So I did this. And after 20 minutes, nothing changed. And then a friend uh, came by the house, and she was a body worker, and she was really good. And she showed me some points to hold on his feet. And I did this. And uh, nothing changed. And I just sat there, you know, at midnight, John, breathing. And I felt uh, this urge in me. Now, um, I think it's really important to listen to these urges that are inside us. I have a vow to listen to them three times, actually. If they keep coming around, then on the third time, I feel like I should act. Now the problem is, I don't always like these urges. So this urge said, you should get into bed with John. And I thought, no way. That's like one of the Stephen Levine books or something. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't do that, you know. And John, was, and this was not the kind of guy, this was not this kind of, he didn't like this kind of stuff. Really good, you know, looked great, you know. So I thought, I don't know. But I did. I followed the urge, and I climbed up, and I remember squeezing in between the wall and him, and I had him cradled here in the... I could feel his bones against my bones. He was hot and damp. And I found myself just... Uh, um, holding him there. And then I felt another urge. Oh, it was even more uncomfortable. It's horrible. I said I should sing. I thought, oh no, this is <laughs> way too far. This is <laughs> not the kind of thing we would do at all. And I'm a terrible singer, you know. I thought, this is just starting to look like a TV movie. But I said, here it is, three times. So I started to sing. Now, how many of you are parents in the room? Oh, not. Do you ever sing those 
songs to your children that you don't really know, you just make up as you go along. <laughs> you know, you ever do that? Like you sort of get a melody and then you just make up words as you go. You don't really know where it's going to go, actually. You mean Can you, you give us an example? Gavin, sweet, sweet boy, kind, kind heart, know your love, like that. And so I just began to sing to him that way. Not really knowing where the words would come from. And I found my hands were stroking him, you know. Uh, first on his throat, you know. But then on his heart. And I noticed that as I did this, uh, his head came forward and his throat relaxed. And he fell asleep. Not a big uh, dramatic ending. He didn't die, you know. Go through the borders or something. He just fell asleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And afterwards I wondered if I had done something wrong, actually. Maybe I'd stopped some spiritual progress. Maybe I had held something back. I don't know. I do know that for any of us to be free, our hearts have to be soft. So can we just enter into the situation sometimes not knowing? being willing to not know and allow the situation itself to show us the way. Trust, really, our own innate generosity mm. and goodness. We really have confidence that it will reveal itself. But we don't have to manufacture it or generate it in some way. But it's always there. It's completely reliable. It's never sick and it never dies. Cultivate, don't know mind. It reminds me of um, when you're talking of holding that fellow and singing to him. as you were a child, that statement of Christ where he says, you know, we have to become like children to enter the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And I have no doubt what these, for me, that speaks to the innocence of a child that is not dragging the past into the present to be the light that guides that child, just with a childlike innocence, beginner's mind um, is kind of the doorway to the Kingdom of God. And it feels to me that one of the great blessings of meditation practice is the flowering of the capacity to bring ourselves to circumstances that are undefined by, that we can relate to undefined by history. Because so many of us, of course, you know, we've had a lifetime of experience, we've been socialized in so many different ways. It's really a difficult thing to bring ourselves to the circumstances of life with the mind of a child or with, as, um, as 
you know, Frank Sisson's precept, you know, with the don't know mind, you know, that, you know, as Shunru Suzuki said, you know, the mind of, uh, the beginner's mind, a fresh mind, an innocent mind, is filled with possibilities, and the mind of an expert has few possibilities. And so, just bringing ourselves to life, uh, unmediated, hopefully, by the proliferation of thinking, which we are so conditioned to almost impose as a filter between ourselves and the experience of life, enables us to come with the kind of innocence where we can hear the impulse to hold and the impulse to sing quite beyond the ways in which we've been socialized to behave. It's so beautiful. So, you know, I'm always looking for the most simple way. Really, because I'm not so smart, really. I mean, it's part of it, you know. And I need um, really simple things. So, you know, just the breath. Just what? Bring, in other words, not trying to make this big, this Zen thing, cultivate don't know mind into some big treatise, you know. Just the willingness to sit in the gap at the end of the exhale and rest. Mm. Not really knowing if the inhale is going to come. Not knowing what its shape is going to be. How deep or long or short or if it will come at all. Who knows? So I have to practice in really simple ways like that. Just resting in this gap at the end of the exhale. like it, it takes a simple heart and mind to understand the simple truth and we're so complicated and sometimes I just have the sense that my own complication is the impediment, the stumbling block to what is simply true and always there, the essence as you, as you call it, the Buddha nature. Some of you are old enough to remember 50s variety shows. Yeah? I used to watch them on TV a lot. I was very enamored by them. One of the things I remember about them is that they, um, there was always a lot of revealing that happened in these 50s variety shows. There were lots of curtains. There were curtains that opened this way and there were curtains that opened this way. Wasn't there, right? There were like several layers of curtains that would always open. You know? Sometimes when I'm sitting, I feel like I'm in a 50s variety show. Yeah? That there's all these obscurations in the form of velvet curtains and such, you know, that start to open up, you know, and keep revealing mm-hmm. and open in different ways. Ways I couldn't have expected, actually. And then I just see, without any having to figure out, without any struggle, it's just immediately apparent, you know, like when the sky clears. You don't have to wonder, is this a beautiful sky or not? (laughs) You recognize it immediately. You know it. And the same is true. We recognize our nature immediately as these obscurations fall away. 
We don't have to chip away at them or force them to leave. Their nature is to fall away. It's their nature. It's the nature of everything, every compound thing. And then love recognizes itself. Yeah, something like that, I think. My dog, you know, I travel a lot. I'm away sometimes for a month at a time, and my dog never ceases to recognize me. <laughs> Even if I'm away a really long time, you know. And when I come, he always loves me. Always. I've never had that not be the case. So I think that we recognize that dimension of ourselves easily. We don't have to struggle to find it. But I think um, we should stop talking so much. Or you should stop talking so okay. much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just uh, enjoy this nature here a little bit. Really see that you belong in this nature. Mm. You understand? It's not just, oh, it's a nice place to walk in. It's that you also are made up of the very same thing. When you walk on the earth, you know, feel that element. See that your feet and the ground are made of the same thing. When your body moves and there's motion, understand that's the same as the motion of the air. And your heart's pumping, you know. You can feel it as the moisture in the sky. <coughs> and this creative spark that enters us, you know, this incredible heat in the body. You know that it's the warmth of the sun. We're just star-like, congealed. But walk like you belong on the earth. Should we take a walking tree? Or do you have something else you want to add? To well, how about, um, it's, it's 12 o'clock here. I just would like to check in with a suggestion, maybe. How does it feel if we, it feels like the togetherness feels important. Mm. Why don't we go downstairs and head outside together, you know, in a line, following each other, and we'll keep to the shady areas as much as possible. Maybe walk a little quicker because we'd be doing slow walking. Come back for a short sitting, collect the energy before lunch. Does that feel Mm -hmm. like a a good idea? Can you lead us? us Yeah, yeah. Great. And then we will break for, for lunch for an hour and then we'll come together for the afternoon session. Does that feel workable? I know that I was really talking about your dog. I was in the dog box last retreat because we, what time did we end up having lunch? A quarter of two. <laughs> so this is, this is a, a, set, a delicate area. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, I want to thank you for your uh, sincerity and your listening, you know. It's not enough just to talk. Somebody has to listen. Otherwise, you know, nothing's really important is happening then. So thank you for listening. 